Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. So this week, um, I had lunch with um, a new dad. Um, there's somebody in our church family who had a baby recently. And one of the things that I love about this church is that there are um, those who are single. There are those who are couples. There are those who are married. There are families with kids. And we are going to continue to faithfully pray that someday we will have some age and wisdom among us. Um, but there is, there's a real mix of different life stages in our church. Um, as I sat there talking with this tired-eyed um, new dad, um, it just sort of occurred to me how amazing the development is in the first year or so of life. I mean, if you think about from conception to like the cake smash at age one, right, <laughs> if, if you celebrate a birthday that way, um, it's incredible. Like from an individual cell all the way up to this living, this, this talking, walking, eating thing, this child, it's phenomenal. Um, it changes really, really fast. So that's kind of what I told this, this guy. I said, you know what? The changes just keep coming. Um, there's changes in sleep patterns. There's changes in the noises that kids make. There's changes in the facial expressions. There's changes in how you connect and how you soothe a baby. There's, there's all these constant changes happening. And as, as kids get older, you have developmental changes continuing, but you also start to have what I would call more disobedience changes happening. <laughs> it is not that development and disobedience are the only two categories of parenting by any means, um, but it gets really kind of tricky and need for, there's need for wisdom when development and disobedience start to kind of get twisted together, right? Think about this. The teenager who's searching for identity and meaning. And um, that's development, right? It's just something that happens at that stage of life where we begin thinking about that stuff. But the teenager who starts searching for things by sneaking out of the house in order to find them on their own, well, that's probably more disobedience. The child who is sharpening their reasoning skills. They have this newfound development and they are arguing and sharing their opinions constantly. Well, that's probably developmental, all right? But when a child gets to the point where they always know what is best and parents don't know what they're doing, well, that can drift towards disobedience. Or for one of my kids right now, when mo gross motor skills all of a sudden just like, emerge and you look around and a toddler is standing on top of the kitchen table because they have conquered, right? Um, that's probably more development. Um, but when it's bedtime and consistently and continually the, the child runs from the room, refuses to do um, the habit and routine of going to bed, well, we're maybe the other. So there's little you can do or probably should do besides general nutrition and help towards health, to further development. Those changes just sort of keep coming. Um, but with disobedience, there's often a need to step in and to address something. 
And that's exactly what we have the Apostle Paul doing here. Remember his motto was, his motto was maturity, that he is going to labor and struggle with everything he's got and all of the strength and energy Paul, that God gives him to present others mature in Christ. And I think the, the way that he says he's going to do that is he's going to warn and he's going to teach with all wisdom. That's a good word for parents to warn and teach with all wisdom. But what's happened here in Colossians chapter two is some of the drift, some of the disobedience, not the development, is starting to come into the conversation. And why is that? Well, it's because in the last few verses, the apostle Paul has said, all that this church and all that every Christian has in Christ Right? He's listed seven different things about all the riches and fullness and goodness of what it means for them to be in Christ, to believe in him and be found in him. In him, there's fullness of deity. We find fullness of God in Jesus. In Jesus, we're filled with the one who is full of all rule and authority. In him, Christians are circumcised. They're set apart. In him, we die and are buried to an old life. And in him, we are raised to a new life. And in him, we are made alive and made new. And in him, we even have triumph and victory. This incredible story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and victory. The Christian and the church participates and is united into his victory, his Life and death has now become ours. Our identity is in him. Our union is with him. So with all of those riches and all the fullness there for them, for their own growth and development, he now points his finger at a few things that are not growth. What is Paul doing in verses 16 through 23, the end of chapter two? Well, I believe he's pointing out the thing other than development. If you say it this way, what I'd like to do is speak to you for a few minutes this morning along the subject, that's not growth. That's not growth. So here, three things that are not growth. Paul says, number one, growth comes from God because the substance is the Savior. All right, here is verse 16 again. Therefore, so therefore, in light of everything that he's just said and all the riches that are theirs in Christ, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So therefore, because of that, let no one pass judgment. Judgment, of course, is what happens when there is superiority felt and inferiority placed when there is something that makes for an exclusion from the group or that's required for a kind of inclusion. What Paul's getting at here is the advancement, the status, the, the leaving of the rest of the crowd behind because a, a person lives in a certain way or according to certain habits, regulations. It is a kind of distinction based on behavior, language, participation in something or refraining something. 
And what he's saying here is that all of these practices have a way of being used to judge those within the church. Why is he saying that? Well, likely, these are Jewish traditions. There was a significant problem for the early church with pockets of Jewish believers placing additional regulations, requirements upon other believers in order for them to be accepted into the family of God. So likely that's probably what's going on here when he talks about festivals, because the Jewish, the, the Jewish celebration, the Jewish calendar year had a series of different festivals and gatherings to it. Likely it was that even in, in terms of the moon cycles or even Sabbath keeping. But what you see here is Paul saying, even all these practices which are Jewish are but shadows pointing ahead to the thing that is substance. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that with the Sabbath, this day of the week that was designed for rest and for man, the real Sabbath that was coming was a kind of rest in God found in Jesus. What he's saying here is the, the, te- the, the tents or the, fe- the feasts of booths, the feasts of the unleavened bread, all these different Jewish practices find their fulfillment, their satisfaction, their ultimate expression in the Lord Jesus. He's saying the shadows were these things, the substance is Christ. And as he talks about them, he's working a play on words here. And it's kept actually in the, language, the English language of this translation. In, in the Greek, it says shadow, skia, and substance, soma. So you can think about it this way. He's, he's working this S word, right? There's, there's things that are skia, and there's things that are soma. There's things that are shadow, there's things that are substance. And what he means by shadow, of course, is something that's almost like from light, just like a shadow, casting the reflection or giving a shape to the image of something that's real, something that's true. It could be in terms of like an actual physical shadow. That's part of the way the word's used. It also could be metaphorical. Like this is a representation of something where the real, the true thing is something else altogether. So one of my favorite places to sit in my house is um, in what I call the front room in the morning. Our house faces east. And so as you sort of see the sun rise up on that side of the horizon, light floods into the house. And what I do sometimes if I'm not sitting there is I'm sitting in the back of the house in the living room, just sitting there reading or having a cup of coffee. And as the sun comes up, you start to see a little bit of light come through the windows and on the walls. Now, what Paul is saying is, what's going on here with these practices, these regulations, is the confusion of the bit of light upon the walls in the morning versus the sun itself coming over the horizon. I don't know when the last time you've seen the sunrise, but the sunrise is breathtaking. It's incredible. And the sunrise is even only something that we get at a distance millions of miles from the sun itself, right? So what he's saying is the substance is like the sun, but they've opted for the shadows, just a little bit of light in the living room. That's the contrast that he's working. But what are the shadows now? Right, we're talking about 
the most natural connection here being to Jewish cultural customs. And it's true that in the New Testament, these Jewish groups gave the churches plenty of trouble. But now we have a new era. The light has come. And all of the shadow, all of the mystery has been revealed in Christ. And so how do we translate this in a way that makes sense? Because what you have here is really a pre-Christian environment. Colossae is this city that the good news of Jesus has just come to. We learned about it in chapter one, this guy Epaphras, he was the hometown church planter and he went back to town and finally started talking about Jesus after he came to faith and then a church formed and developed. They were in many ways pre-Christian. The gospel had just reached them. But, but we here in Minneapolis are more and more post-Christian. The gospel has come and many in our neighborhoods have enough heritage of religion, enough connection to religion to then justify their rejection of Jesus. So we live in a completely different context. It doesn't sound good. Um, But we live in a completely different context. So how do we translate? Here's how I think. Here's how I think we translate. I think if Paul is saying those things don't give growth, if he's saying growth comes from God, not from the observance of human tradition, or even religious tradition, even Jewish tradition, what he's saying here is that whenever a practice culturally, whenever a tradition culturally promises an addition to Christ, it is in fact only going to rob us of Christ. Whenever something is saying, hey, let's do Jesus plus this, it's actually doing Jesus minus. It's taking away rather than adding. Paul is saying these things, though they are, they are culturally historical and tied to the development of the Jewish tradition and then Christianity as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. What he's saying here is that Jesus plus does not equal growth. They're but shadows. Let me see if I can spin it two ways. One would be similarity. Like, I wonder where you are overly connected to the practices and patterns of our culture. Where are you too similar to the way that everyone else in our city lives, works, and operates? Where perhaps is there something to gain there from similarity, but that's not really gaining at all? Perhaps you are too similar. Or on the other hand, perhaps you are too spiritual. Perhaps you are overly committed to a certain kind of religious tradition such that your posture has become prideful such that your denominational background or the way that you think about theology or the way that you think about engaging culture has inflated you to the point where the kind of judgment happening here in the first century is mirrored in the kind of judgment happening here in the 21st century. Are you perhaps overly similar to the cultural practices around you? Or are you in a way overly spiritual, setting yourself above other Christians? Both of these things will not yield growth because growth comes from God. 
Paul started this book by saying, hey, this church is first in Christ and second at Colossae. Where have you reversed the order? I am first Minneapolis, first American, second Christian. I think Paul has the order for a reason. Paul's saying from cultural traditions, that's not growth. Not from the observance of a tradition, but those things are often shadows pointing to the substance because God gives the growth. Jesus is the substance. Not only is Jesus substance, but if you spin this word soma, it's actually the word used in the entire letter and much of the New Testament for body. So the shadows are to these traditions, but the body is of Christ. And that's my second point. Growth comes from God because the body belongs to Christ. Meaning the body of Christ, if it's going to grow, has to be connected to Christ rather than connected to what is shadows. Let's keep reading. It says, let no one disqualify you, assisting, insisting on asceticism and worship at angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Disqualifies the key word here. It means literally to cheat or to disqualify in a competitive event. We have some competitive people here, and it's fair to say that if you were cheated out of winning, you would feel some kind of way about that. Um, but what Paul's saying here is those who insist on some of these spiritually sensational experiences have a way of disqualifying you, cutting you out from the prize, from the championship, from the crown. Because who is the crown? Well, the crown of the body is the head, and the crown of the Christian is the Lord. So he's saying in order to compete and win the prize, we have to not let these things disqualify us from holding fast to the head of the body, which is Christ. What disqualifies then is those who insist on a kind of experience or sensation that really is from a sensuous mind rather than from a sound mind, a spiritual mind, rather than from the mind of Christ. These are not the normal religious practices like he was talking about earlier, like the Sabbath. These are the extraordinary spiritual experiences. I mean, perhaps there's someone you know or an experience you've had where someone shares their encounter or experience with the Lord in a way that seems so tantalizing and so higher, better, above your own experiences that all you do is feel like second rate in contrast to the kind of incredible moment with the Lord or revelation that that person has. Ever talked with someone like this? where their visions, their insights, their experiences don't have a way of building them up or building you up so much as raising them up and putting you down. What Paul is saying here is that these mystical experiences, they're not growth. Now they can happen, but growth is from God. 
not grow from these experiences. And here's why. Because growth is not the posture of spiritual over physical or out-of-body experiences rather than connected to the body experiences. What he's getting at here is that nourishment for the Christian comes from a kind of connection with others and a connection to the Lord. And when your spiritual experiences disconnect you from others and in some ways distract you from connection to the Lord, they actually are not helpful in producing growth. These kind of visions, these kind of sensations, these kind of dreams go to your head rather than connect you to the head, who is Christ. Now listen, not everyone here is familiar with um, nor even given to the more charismatic expressions of the faith. And so what I want to do is try and speak to the people that I think are here. Um, and in no way am I saying that more charismatic expressions of the faith are not genuine at all. But with, with those kinds of experiences comes a need for a kind of wisdom that unless that wisdom is had in connection with other believers and in reference to Christ, things can go sideways pretty quickly. So listen, here's what I want to do. I want to actually put on my prophetic lens and gifting and speak the ways that most prophets have done throughout history, which is to help God's people realize some things and then to help God's people return to some things. That is the way prophets function throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. They set before the truth, the plain truth with God's people saying, hey, can you realize this is where we're at? And then they called God's people to return, saying, return again to the Lord, to his steadfast love and to his mercy You've left the covenant of God, the relationship, the sweet love of God, and he's calling you back. So look at this. I wonder if you can see that where we are is that we live in a sensual age. We live in a sensual age, meaning that comfort and pleasure are offered to us at every turn. In the most innocuous ways, in terms of here, here's a beverage for this, or here's some comfort for that, or let me adjust your seat temperature as you sit in your car, uh, or in more insidious ways, starting to unravel and get at the brokenness of our own being and body. Comfort and pleasure are offered to us always. That's something for us to be aware of. But not only do we live in a sensual, sensual age, we live in a sensory age, right? Yes, I'm talking about this. Where's the phone? Where's the iPad? I'm talking about this, right? I'm talking about the screen. And the funny thing is that like the American Academy of Pediatrics has decided very clearly this, no good for kids, right? And like the tycoons of Silicon Valley, right? They've decided this, I'm going to hide from my kids, right? And, And yet the funny thing is we've reasoned maybe that those things are, yeah, they're not so good for kids, but they're, they're fine for adults. As if they have no effect on our own mind and imaginations. And now, I'm not saying you should not have a phone. I'm not saying you should not watch a movie. I'm not saying you should not have a computer. By any means, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, can you see, can you be aware that we live in this highly sense-oriented age where everything lights up 
glitters, makes noise, and straight can overwhelm you. If you want to know how to put a child into a trance, show them this. Every time, they will glue and they will stop whatever they are doing. And so we have to understand some of the mental and, 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 and even soulful power of these things. And not just these, but we live in an environment where everything has noise to it and light to it in a way that can distract us from what's really happening and going on. It appeals to our senses such that we might not operate with our senses. So we have to be careful there. What about life in a sparkly age? Do we not live in a time where being genuine and authentic is what we say we're all about, but yet we still want things bigger, better, shinier, cleaner? We want things to sparkle. And we desire, like like the first followers of Jesus, to walk along through life and say, look at this building. Look at these stones on top of one another speaking to the temple. And yet they, they haven't quite realized that the true temple is walking next to them. And their whole life would be at the point of fulfillment satisfaction if they realized whom they were with rather than the sparkly structure that they were next to. We also are tempted by these things and have to live in such a way that reckons with the fact that sometimes heightened spirituality as it reflects these things, is really just a form of haughty, prideful spirituality, a false humility puffed up, not a kind of spirituality that builds up. So where have you settled for sensation, disconnected from reality? Where are you tempted to say, I want to live out of body, or at least out of the moment, hoping that it will help you with your development? I think that if the church continues to be driven by the American addictions of experience and entertainment, it will not grow up. But rather, when fads pass, it will be clear that it has grown cold. And it is connection to Christ and connection to the people of God that will nourish Christians, helping them grow up and develop towards maturity. Sensory overloaded Christians... Paul says that's not growth. Growth comes in connection to Christ. All right, last one. Growth comes from God because life is from the Lord. Let me read this last section. It says, if you with, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you see the logic? If you've died, if you've died to these things and you now are alive with Christ, why do you go back? If you've died, you are no longer alive in cosmos, alive in the world. 
but you are alive in Christ. And your very life flows from connection to him, not from connection to these things. These things, these regulations, these traditions, these food restrictions, these practices, they'll just pass away. But Christ, who is your life, will last forever. How do we often settle for an appearance of wisdom rather than for the real thing? Holy Week, which we're celebrating this morning and we will next Sunday on Easter Sunday, is all about the appearance of wisdom versus what's fully wisdom, true wisdom. You have in the story, of course, right? Jesus walking around and teaching and then also dealing with the Pharisees and those who opposed him saying, hey, you have a funny way, a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God for your own traditions. You have an appearance of wisdom. And even, even in his own suffering, they claimed an appearance of wisdom. If we could just do away with the one, we'll save the nation. They didn't know what they were doing. Because Jesus had the fullness of wisdom and is the fullness of wisdom. He knew enough to go to the cross saying, you think that you will save one nation here by cutting me off. But I go willingly to the cross, which is folly in your eyes, because not just will I save one nation, but I will die and rise offering salvation to all nations. Through my resurrection, I will offer new life a kind of life that means any kind of struggle of the flesh will soon die and in Christ has died like my body on the cross. And I will raise it to a new way of life. This is the hope of the gospel. Not that if we are severe to our bodies and we beat ourselves to a pulp, whether that's mentally or whether that's physically, that somehow we will grow godly. Our hope is that because of the severity and suffering of Christ, we have now the power and the grace needed to grow godly. Not based on what we will do, but because of what he has done. The foolishness of the cross was true wisdom offered to us in this week and offered to us every week. That's one of the reasons why every week we respond and celebrate communion together because it reminds us that that the, the resources we need for any kind of growth in the faith do not come from our adherence to religion and tradition. They do not come from our spectacular experiences or sensations. They do not even come from any kind of do not touch this or do not taste that. They come from connection to Christ. Growth comes from God. And so when you come forward to commune with the Lord and receive the Lord's Supper, you are saying again, I believe growth comes from Christ. He is my head, the rule of all authority, the one whom I owe my life to. May I be nourished by his grace and live in a new life 